Welcome to Top Score from Classical Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Emily Rees. Composer Bear McCreary's first job out of college was to write music for the reimagined sci-fi show Battlestar Galactica. His success on that show opened the door for Bear to score video games, and his first venture into that medium was Capcom's Dark Void, followed by Sony's SOCOM 4. Dark Void is set prior to World War II, cargo pilot gets lost in the Bermuda Triangle and thrust into another world called the Void. The Void isn't so much another world as it is a transitional world between Earth and the alien home with stunning visuals. written for a number of TV shows in what's kind of a brief career. Uh, I have noticed that you're younger than me. <laughs> which... Sorry. <laughs> no, but it's fantastic. I just love all of the projects you've been uh, had the opportunity to work on. It just sounds like they've all been so fun for different reasons. But you've recently discovered yourself in the world of writing for video games. So would you mind telling me how you were approached about writing for Dark Void? Yeah, it was uh, interesting because video games are something I've always wanted to be involved in. Um, I grew up playing games and still play frequently. So it's something I've always been thinking about, but I never really pursued in any serious manner. And then uh, Capcom approached me about this science fiction game called Dark Void, which was very much a a swashbuckling, pulpy, sci-fi tale that needed that kind of lyrical, fun, orchestral score. Mm -hmm. And I think they approached me mainly because of my work on Battlestar Galactica, which was, um, it was a very exciting score, but it was none of those things. It was, (laughs) it was not a very retro score in any kind of way. So Dark Void gave me a chance to kind of start returning to my musical roots and write music that is more orchestral in nature, more melodic, more just a, a, a little more fun mm-hmm. than my Galactica scores, which are very fun just in a, in a very serious way, I would say. When I first heard the music for Dark Void, I heard the music before I played the game, and I could totally tell it was you, but it was very different in exactly the ways you're saying, much more lyrical and less subtle, I guess, is what I'm, I'm thinking. Absolutely. And it, in, in many ways, I will always think of Dark Void as a major turning point in my creative life because I got into the scoring business because of composers like 
Elmer Bernstein, and Jerry Goldsmith, mm-hmm. John Williams, Alan Silvestri, Basil Polidorus, Ennio Morricone. And when I first got into the business, which was really with Battlestar Galactica, which was my first real job, I had to go counter to all of those instincts. Mm-hmm. I had to play something so different from all of that stuff that I grew up listening to that it was sort of a difficult adjustment for me. Mm-hmm. And then ironically, I I made my mark with that show doing music that is not what I grew up listening to. And right. so with Dark Void, it was the first time that I took a step back in that direction. And, and it was sort of a timid step. I remember turning over my first sketches and thinking, can you do this? Can, can, <laughs> can you write like this anymore? That actually had a huge effect on my career because Dark Void is what led me to working on other projects like Human Target and The Cape, uh, which allowed me to explore that sound even more. also wrote the score for SOCOM 4, and between those two scores, it seems like Dark Void had more opportunities to just be tender. You know what I'm saying? Just the difference. Absolutely. The score to Dark Void, it's probably one of the most beautiful scores that I have written, which is ironic that it's for this rocket pack adventure game. (laughs) But I wrote this theme that, that really was quite gorgeous. And I was just thinking about the script that I had read and and the story, which was a story of a guy who gets sucked into a vortex and falls in love with a girl and Mm -hmm. leads this revolution against aliens and uh, has sort of an emotional ending. You know, ultimately, the game didn't end up being as emotional as I wanted it to be. But I didn't care because I that that kernel was there, that that seed of a great emotional arc was there. And so that was my inspiration for writing this theme. And and when you when you listen to that record, especially, you know, a lot of those cinematic sequences really are just beautiful, tender moments that feature this mm-hmm. main theme, which functions as a heroic fanfare. It also functions as a love theme when it needs to. Um, that was the the trick with that game was was writing that one core theme that would allow me to explore all of these different sides of the game. The theme is something that I always spend a lot of time on. It's always the first thing that I do, and, and I make sure that it's going to be adaptable enough for what I need it to do in that project. And in the case of Dark Void, that was quite a heavy load. stumbled upon a video of you talking at Google when you're explaining how 
speaking of themes, how scared you were to use themes in the very first initial episodes of Battlestar. And here you're talking about them in video games like, well, that's just what you do. Yeah, well, you know, thematic writing is how I've always thought about music since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I was identified to the use of thematic music listening to Elmer Bernstein and Jerry Goldsmith and... John Williams. And these are the kinds of scores that, uh, you know, got me first thinking about film music. When I got Battlestar, which was my first gig, I was told to have no themes. And I think that this is because the producers wanted to do something entirely different than Star Wars and Star Trek and the obvious space opera bombastic scoring. And so when they said no themes, what I think they meant was they don't want to hear big French horns blasting away the Star Wars main title. Sure, But I wasn't sure how literally they meant that, because, of course, a theme can be anything. Anything that repeats more than once can be considered a theme in in some capacity. So with Battlestar, I kept the thematic writing relatively subtle for a long time. As the seasons went on, it became a little more overt. But it definitely, as I said with Dark Void, made me a little timid to start going that way. And then once I kind of got back in the swing of things, uh, I I definitely have started writing more overt thematic material. that really struck me about Dark Void was the visuals and just the, the scenery and the buildings of the Watchers, oh, which yeah. are the aliens in, in the game. It's just stunning. The buildings of the Watchers are gorgeous. And I just really got into looking at the game in addition to playing and listening oh, yeah. to the game. I, it's funny you mention that because the only thing that I had to go on to write my music was concept art. I had seen a couple builds of the game and played them a little bit so I understood the mechanics. Mm -hmm. But essentially, I just had concept art for each level. So when you're listening to the record, what you're hearing is what the concept art of the environments and the characters and the buildings inspired within me. Because it really was a gorgeously designed game. So Capcom released an 8-bit prequel to Dark Void. It's called Dark Void Zero. And you, yeah. you I read that you wrote an 8-bit soundtrack to that game, but that you actually did it the old school way with like a cartridge and an old NES. Is that right? It's mostly right. I actually, <laughs> uh, working with a friend of mine, a guy named Jonathan Snipes, who uh, designs a lot of my synthesizer sounds, he and I sampled the chip synthesis off of a Nintendo hardware so that the sound you're hearing is literally a Nintendo console generating sine and triangle waves and white noise going through the D to A's that we're all used to hearing growing up playing a Nintendo. Mm -hmm. But then I was able to sample those sounds so that I would have the freedom to compose with them quickly and work with them in my studio. So it was really the best case scenario. Oh, sure. And the funny thing is with that, the reason I first developed those sounds was I found out that um, Inafune-san, who I consider a genius, who created uh, the Mega Man 
series for Capcom back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. He was an executive producer on Dark Void and was coming in the office every once in a while, checking out the progress on the game and, you know, listening to the music. Wow. And when I found out that he was there, I, I was so starstruck that I um, <laughs> I was trying to think of a way I could thank him for yeah. all of the years of inspiration that I got playing Mega Man and I thought well what if I did a version of Dark Void's theme song in an 8-bit style so that's exactly what I did and I gave it to them and I thought it was just a little joke sure. uh, but everybody at Capcom loved it so much they started bouncing around the idea of actually making a game that would go with the music <laughs> So that's actually how that happened. And then once they made the game, they said, hey, well, you know, we're we're making this game. It's going to go on iPhone and Nintendo DS, and we're just going to use your theme song. And I said, no, you're not. I'm going to write a whole score. <laughs> there you go. Because I had already taken, I mean, it took us weeks to sample the Nintendo sounds and, and get the sounds working. And I, and I thought, you know, this is my opportunity to, to actually use these sounds. And so Dark Void Zero is not only a great little game, the developers made a fantastic little 8-bit style game. Mm-hmm. Um, but the soundtrack is on iTunes. I mean, it's a it's a 13 minute album. Uh, I think it's only a couple bucks, but it's just it's some of the most fun I've ever had writing music. Very cool. ask you you used an instrument in dark void it's it's like a theremin but it i boy i can't imagine it's a theremin it almost sounded like an electric guitar with an ebo but it would have had to be a fretless guitar i mean i'm like going through all these scenarios in my head you were closer the you were closer the first time oh okay the (laughs) the instrument is called an owned martineau i first heard it in the scores of uh, elmer bernstein he started using it uh with heavy metal and ghostbusters and it became a part of his ensemble starting in the 80s when whenever he would score a film and in fact Cynthia Miller who played Own Martineau for Elmer is the performer who played on Dark Void wow it's a similar technology to a theremin but it's much more controlled if you picture a keyboard that can be played like a regular keyboard but there's also a ribbon that runs across the keys and that ribbon you put your finger in like a little sort of thimble style thing and you move your finger along and that is what bends the pitch and you can create vibratos essentially what it is it's a theremin that you can control precisely the pitch because if you've ever played a theremin it's not the easiest thing to control and in fact depending on what electronic equipment is in the room or what room you're in the way you play it changes so there's Mm -hmm. it's really a different animal every time you pick up a theremin Mm -hmm. and the owned is is a hauntingly beautiful sound and uh i'd always wanted to use one and uh i just thought dark void was the perfect opportunity so it's featured prominently in in the, in the main title and in several other cues. came out it came out in mid-april 
And mm-hmm. earlier I said that you had some really great opportunities in Dark Void to introduce some really tender musical moments. But the thing that strikes me about the SOCOM 4 soundtrack is that those existed there too, which for me was almost like a breath of fresh air into a soundtrack for, you know, I mean, let's face it, an over-the-top shooter, military totally. shooter, like SOCOM. Yeah. So did they ask you to to do some more tender writing for SOCOM 4, or was that just your artistic license there? Uh, well, it was in both cases. Uh, w- without question, SOCOM 4 is the most cinematic and character-driven SOCOM game to date. And... It needed a character-driven thematic score. And so that was one of my first questions when I was meeting with the developers is I, I wasn't even sure that I was the right guy to score this game because, uh, you know, it's not my idea of a good time to write five hours of action music. Right. But in speaking with them, you know, there, there were several things that we wanted to accomplish. And, and I think that we did. We wanted to create a main theme that you could identify with the main character. We wanted to create an emotional setting that can help underline the story because there is a character arc, uh, although it's simple, mm-hmm. uh, it's there. Mm-hmm. And it's something that sets SOCOM 4 apart from all the other games in the franchise. And then probably above all, we wanted to comment on the setting. It takes place in Southeast Asia. So unlike Dark Void and Battlestar Galactica, where I was able to draw from instruments from all over the world and and use any sound that I could possibly imagine, with SOCOM 4, I really had to do my homework and really studied gamelan music. And in fact, we worked with a live gamelan ensemble. Oh, wow. uh, Which was an incredible learning experience for me and uh, brought in a lot of soloists and specialty Japanese and Chinese and Vietnamese instruments. And obviously with the gamelan, you've got the Indonesian influence and wanted to create a score that evoked Southeast Asia immediately so that as soon as you started playing the game, you knew exactly where you were. And that was the thing that sets SOCOM 4 apart, I think, from other work that I've done, which has used Japanese and Asian instruments, but in SOCOM, it's, it's as authentic as I could possibly make it. Battlestar Galactica was a great show. I loved it. My friends loved it. People who say they don't like sci-fi loved it. And the music was great. Am I right that you did the music for pretty much every single episode? I mean, because you started with 33. Yeah, all of them except for a couple episodes in season one. So, I mean, I I did over 75 hours of Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) Wow. The end of season one is really where the score, not only the score to Battlestar, but but also the show and the writing itself really starts to evolve and branch out. Definitely. At this point, the series is very, um, they called it doco, which meant documentary style. Oh, okay. And it was sort of like a military documentary up until that point. Uh-huh. Starting around there, when you look at it sort of structurally, the show becomes about the divine becomes about prophecy. We, we start getting inside characters' emotions and inside their heads in a very visceral way more frequently. And it's not a coincidence that that is the point that you start getting these orchestral 
thematic passages in the score. Mm-hmm. You start getting some more influences coming from the music of Ireland and the Middle East right. and South America. And these things started happening at the same time. And, and, and it was really a result of the direction that the show started to take. And when I think about the closing moments of season one, which I will not spoil, truly take the show into such an ethereal and divine place mm-hmm. that you think it's it's really a very different kind of show than it was at the beginning of the miniseries. And then that progression continues throughout the course of the show. And that, that's what made it so exciting for me is that it was a continual evolving and dynamic experience. It, it, it was very unusual for television. seems like it would just be such a wonderful experience for you to be the guy from the beginning. I mean, because you were a part of it for the miniseries, but you weren't necessarily the lead writer until an episode or two after that. But just what a great experience that would be to be uh, involved with the show from beginning to end. It really was a life-altering experience. And when, when we got to the end, I mean, it really felt as if I had made a journey with those main characters. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it was a profound experience and, and uh, changed my life forever without, without question. talk a little bit about your background in music. And and one of the things that uh, strikes me talking with you is that when you're talking about uh, your passion for film scores, you're mentioning names that were really, truly the pioneers in, in film scoring. I don't know if you've said it in this particular interview or if I read it elsewhere, but you were talking about Ennio Morricone and Nino Rota and, uh, of course, Bernard Herrmann and Elmer Bernstein as being some of your favorites. And, again, that's a refreshing thing to hear, too. Just obviously John Williams is a huge influence on on everyone who walks the planet. (laughs) And and so clearly uh, respect is due there as well. But it's just it's neat to hear you say these older names. And you had a particularly, um, I guess, in my womanly way, I would call it touching uh, relationship with Elmer Bernstein. Uh, mm. He was he was your mentor, right? Uh, yes. Can uh, you talk a little bit about that relationship? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to put into words uh, the effect that Elmer Bernstein had on, on me and my life and my career. But 
I met him through a completely random mutual acquaintance um, in my hometown of Bellingham, Washington, and, mm. you know, sent him a little cassette tape of music that I had been writing. I had no formal training at that point and really didn't know what I was doing, but I was very passionate about it and was was writing music in a lot of different styles. And for whatever reason, Elmer heard something there. And when I mm-hmm. think about the kind of music that I sent him... <laughs> And I think if somebody sent me that today, would I, you know, would I hear, would I hear anything in there? And I, I don't know, but mm-hmm. you know, Elmer did and really kind of took me under his wing. At first he helped me get into USC. Uh, and then I sat in on his classes there while I was there. Uh, but then eventually I, I started working for him and I spent a couple summers organizing his complete archive of well, everything. It was his scores and newspaper clippings and just boxes and boxes of memorabilia from an entire life in the movie business. Mm -hmm. And you got to imagine what a learning experience it is because I'm going through these scores and sometimes they wouldn't be marked. So I would sit there and have to read them and figure out what they were. (laughs) And then if I'm, so I'm reading it going, oh, that's the theme from To Kill a Mockingbird. That's what this is. So that Mm. goes in this pile. And then at the end of the day, every day, Elmer would come in and there would be a pile of stuff that I couldn't identify. And then he would sit down and go, oh, he'd start looking at stuff, goes, that that goes there, and this clipping is from 1957, and oh, this one's from 1959, and, wow. and he would just tell me all these stories, would just, would just pour out of his mind while we're sitting there. And then another summer, I orchestrated a film score for him. There was a film he did in 1968 called Kings of the Sun, starring Yul Brenner, which mm. at that time had never been on video. It had never been on, I don't think it had even been on TV. It certainly wasn't on DVD. And there was no soundtrack mm. because the masters had long since been destroyed. Oh, wow. So Elmer, all he had was his handwritten pencil sketches. He didn't even have his scores. So one summer, he gave me a job orchestrating the score and reconstructing it from his handwritten pencil sketches. And then at the end of the summer, he came back and we went over it and he showed me where I made mistakes and what I did right. And you got to imagine for, you know, for a guy, I guess at that point I would have been in my early 20s, mm-hmm. what a learning experience that was. I mean, you don't you don't learn that in school, you know. It right. was an, it was a a crash course in orchestration and thematic writing in in harmony in theory. But more than that, what Elmer really taught me was that it is possible to be successful in life and be happy. That may sound kind of like a goofy thing to say, but but at the time I, I was really going through a really a personal crisis of sorts because I was looking at all of these famous musicians, many of whom were my heroes. I mean, everybody from Beethoven and Ravel and Gershwin Mm -hmm. to Kurt Cobain and Elvis, Janis Joplin, their stories do not end well. No. You know, (laughs) there's a lot of suffering in in music. And I really, in my adolescent mind, I kind of thought, is that what it takes to write great music. Do you does it take a certain amount of misery and pain to be able to do that? And when I met Elmer, it really just washed the cobwebs free of my mind. Here was a guy who was at the top of his game. He was basically sort of a a, a living demigod in his industry. I mean, he had done everything. 
And yet he had a a, a stable family life and and <laughs> wonderful family and and he was just the sweetest, nicest, most wonderful guy you could ever imagine meeting. And and when I got to know him, it, it really gave me a focus that okay, that's what I want. I mean, it doesn't mean that I'll ever get there, but mm-hmm. that's the path that I want to take. that I think I really enjoy about people like Elmer Bernstein or Bernard Herrmann, their their music is so obviously classically trained. I mean, they so clearly have a handle on the tradition of classical music, and I love hearing the way they take that and put that into a modern film, you know? Yeah, it's without just question. genius. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. The thing I liked about those guys, not that, not not that you asked, but I don't. But this is a fascinating topic. <laughs> the thing I like about those guys is they're they're what I consider the second generation of classic Hollywood. In the early days, there was this classical European tradition, Korngold and Steiner and Waxman, that that was mm-hmm. really kind of set in stone. And yeah. whatever genre your movie took place in, it was all variations of one genre of music. And starting with these these young kids coming into the business, Bernard Herrmann and Elmer Bernstein, and and then just a couple years later, you've got Jerry Goldsmith, Henry Mancini. Mm-hmm. Um, these guys are the first people that start scoring films without using that language necessarily. So you have these incredible, fantastically colored scores of Bernard Herrmann using instrumentation that that was incredibly imaginative at the time and also today. Uh, and and uh, Elmer Bernstein starts using jazz in 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 a, in, a, in a real film scoring language. It's but it's but it's jazz. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got the man with the golden arm, and then you even look at scores like To Kill a Mockingbird, which which mm. are so simple and elegant, but they're not that big European sound. Right. And and what's funny, like when you listen to the classic Korngold scores. Well, in many ways, they just sound like John Williams of the 70s and 80s, but <laughs> but they really sound, they sound so dated. They sound exactly like when they were written. Yeah. And when you listen to Bernard Herrmann and Elmer Bernstein, it's hard to pinpoint. I mean, the, yes. the score to To Kill a Mockingbird could be put in a movie today and no one would ever know mm-hmm. that that was written in 1960. It's really kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. I named my cat Atticus, so... (laughs) Hey, there you go. (laughs) When I think about, especially Bernard Herrmann in in particular, I think about the fact that Herrmann and earlier film composers along that vein were almost bringing atonal music to the masses, right? Because we had Schoenberg... Albon Berg and um, Weber and, 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 yeah, and these guys, guys doing this thing yeah. that everybody hated and nobody wanted to hear. And then people like Bernard Herrmann are like, well, yeah, but check it out in this Hitchcock film. <laughs> totally. <laughs> You're going to dig it.
and I hope if there's any, you know, academic composers listening, they don't get mad at me for saying this, but <laughs> I, I think it's hard to deny that film music has done more to advance the general audience appreciation of 20th century composition techniques than the composers who pioneered those did on their own. There was a huge shift uh, after World War II in what people, you know, average audiences considered to be classical music and mm -hmm. symphonic music. And mm -hmm. film music did a lot to change that. And, and ironically, it took 50 or 60 years for the classical music and academic establishment, I think, to start recognizing that impact. You know, mm -hmm. once you were successful in film, the door to, to getting into academic music was kind of closed for a long time. Yes. Um, and that, that's really, I think, changing now, uh, which is good. Can you think of anything else you would like to say? I seriously could talk to you all day, but I want to respect your time. And uh, well, yeah, you know, there's there's there are a couple of things happening in November that would be good to let people know about. Oh, sure. On November 9th, I'm doing a concert here in L.A. That's a um, Freddie Mercury tribute concert. We're raising money for AIDS Project Los Angeles and uh, playing the music of Queen with essentially members of the Battlestar Galactica Orchestra and almost the complete lineup of the heavy metal band Death Clock. Oh, fun. Um, which is going to be a lot of fun, and we're raising money for a, for a good cause. Mm -hmm. And then later in the month, I've got an, um, uh, there's an album coming out, uh, my, my soundtrack for a movie called Zombie Movie, which is part Sweet. of an anthology called Chillerama. And uh, for soundtrack fans, this is going to be one of the most fun records of mine that, that has come out, because essentially it's, my tribute to Jerry Goldsmith in the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. I, I essentially borrowed heavily from the scores he did with Joe Dante because they're just some of my favorite scores he ever did. I saw an opportunity here to do a really fun kind of horror comedy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that comes out on DVD in the end of November, but there'll be an album out too. And it's just some of the most fun I've ever had writing music. So I think people will really enjoy it. Excellent. Pleasure to talk to you. You bet. You've been listening to Top Score from Classical Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Emily Reese. Our technical director is Sam Keenan, and we had additional technical support from Johnny Vince Evans and Scott Adamson. Big news around here for Top Score as we welcome Assassin's Creed composer Jesper Kidd to an exclusive interview event right here at Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul. Jesper will be here Friday, November 18th, just days after the release of Assassin's Creed Revelations. We'll talk about the evolution of his music from the first game to the newest, and he'll hang around for pictures and autographs following the event. And here's something cool for Top Score Twitter followers. You will get the opportunity to reserve your free ticket to the event in advance of everyone else. And for everyone else, tickets will be available for reservation at noon central on Friday, October 21st. Hope to see you there. I hated <laughs> How can you hate <laughs> See, you must be, you just must be an <laughs>
fan from day one, though. See, that's the difference. Uh, well, yeah, but I'm yeah. I'm I'm only a <laughs> fan because they're the greatest games that have ever been made. <laughs> it's not like I'm biased. It's just factually it's speaking, just factually no speaking. game has been better than those. Honestly, if I if I had yeah. to pick a favorite game, it's it's that one. Wow, yeah, that, it's the pinnacle for me and has yet to be topped.